From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Clive Picard on monovision after cataract surgery and Oliver Findle on PCO. To explain to them the difference in adaption and how multifocal lenses all require adaption as well. First this. This year's ASCRS annual symposium was great. I learned a lot that I'm applying to my practice right now. If I have any complaint, it's that I couldn't get to all the sessions I wanted to because some of them overlapped. That's why I'm so excited about the new ASCRS Media Center. More than 1,300 sessions from that meeting are now available through this great new resource. See what you missed or revisit the most interesting sessions. The Media Center is free to all meeting attendees. Stay tuned after the podcast for more information. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the annual meeting of the Asia-Pacific Association of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons in Singapore. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Clive Picard on monovision with conventional IOLs and Oliver Findle on the whys and wares of PCO. All of the interviews were fantastically interesting to me, and I learned a lot in these conversations. I hope that you enjoy them as much as I did. I'm Josh Young. I'm here today with Clive Picard. Uh, we're going to be talking about what you, you, you discussed in your, in your session today, in your talk today. Uh, you're an advocate of monovision, uh, for, do, uh, monovision targets for cataract surgery. Can, can I get you to, to sort of flesh this out? Yeah, well, for the last 30 years, I've been doing monovision routinely on virtually all my cataract patients. One eye is corrected for distance, and the other eye for about minus 1.4. It's a simple calculation. You add two diopters to the hematropia path of that eye. So if you had a patient who was 20 diopters in each eye for hematropia, I would put 20 diopters in one and 22 in the other. No profiling, no trying to sort it out. Do it for the patient. And for, for those patients for uh, whom I, I've uh, done monovision cataract surgery, for uh, me, I've, I've always felt uncomfortable doing it in, in people whom I haven't demonstrated to tolerate it in, in, in contact lenses first. You, you, you I do not. In, yeah, yeah. I hardly ever use the contact lens. Uh, there is a reason for that. Uh, one of the problems is that it takes a while for the patient to adjust, for their brain to adjust to the differences. On average, we, we check our patients to see how they're going on, and nearly all of them are okay at six weeks. But it is six weeks. Some are even longer. Um, now, if you put somebody and you send them out for a contact lens trial, unless they're already contact lens wearers, they will go to their optometrist, they'll put a contact lens in, they'll have it for a day or two, and they'll say, oh, I don't really like this, or I do like it. And it doesn't actually help you. Um, the, my patients are told that virtually everybody, but not 100%, 
do get used to monovision and they may have to wear thin glasses afterwards if they don't. So that's their expectation. But you've got to allow for the time it takes to adjust and a contact lens trial, unless it's prolonged, will not give you that answer. Now, Clever, I'm, I'm sure with, 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 these, with these patients, I, I would think with these patients that you're aiming to have the dominant eye for the distance eye and the non-dominant eye for the, for the reading eye? Yes, but I don't always test for dominance. The first eye is usually done for hematropia, unless they've got, they're myopic with a potential anisometropia four to six diopters. It's only really important if they have some occupation or hobby which requires a particular eye. So that would be in shooters and archers, you must find out which is their shooting eye. It's usually their dominant eye, but not always, which is their shooting eye. And the same for other, hob uh, other activities that require monocular use, uh, telescopes or cameras or whatever. Otherwise, it's been demonstrated, it doesn't make that much difference. Unless the patient has any amblyopia. If they have a degree of amblyopia, uh, a small degree, then that should be the near eye. And, and the good eye for distance. Now, um, some some of my my patients in in my own practice for, for whom I'm not doing monovision, uh, but doing just regular monofocal lenses, um, request a refraction a, a target of let's say minus two minus one point seven five post op. These are PNSs and and people like like this. If I were to do monovision for these patients, would I set the the dominant eye for for that? that near distance? I mean, these are people telling me that their lives are dominantly near. I would not do. I would not do that. Um, it may be this group of patients who are very particular. You may want to do a contact lens trial on something right. to demonstrate that you're right. Unfortunately, I have to be quite dogmatic with my patients because when you tell them, I'm going to do one eye for near and one for distance, they look at you as though you're crazy because it doesn't sound natural. And to explain to them the difference in adaption and how multifocal lenses all require adaption as well is quite complicated. Now, um, for multifocal lenses, there, there, there's, there's screening that, that we do. You know, we, we, we want to uh, be wary of using, mono, uh, uh, of using multifocal contact lenses in patients with macular problems with epiretinal membranes, with macular degeneration. Do we do the, 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 the same sort of screen? Do you do the same sort of screening for monovision patients? Well, I actually do the same sort of screening in all my cataract patients because I want to know everything about them. And since we've now got an OCT, uh, all my patients have a full workup which includes a macular OCT. In terms of the monovision itself, uh, a small degree of uh, a very minor macular problem wouldn't stop me. If it's obviously, if it's asymmetrical, if you've got a, a patient who's lost about a line in one eye for an epimetinal membrane and otherwise the eyes are the same, uh, that would probably be the eye I would uh, put for near, but it wouldn't stop me. But anybody with moderate to profound uh, loss of vision, either as I said before from amblyopia or from macular degeneration, then I would give them both eyes for distance because you want the magnifying effect of the near addition to help them with their reading. Yeah, sure. Look, Clive, it was a, a super talk, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you were able to spend some time with us today. Thank you very much. I'm Josh Young. I'm here with Oliver Findle. We're going to be talking about PCO. Now, Dr. Findle, 
Um, you, you, Say Oliver. Oliver, you, 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 um, you talk about two different populations of uh, cells within the uh, uh, lens capsule after we've taken the cataract out. Uh, those involved in regeneratory PCO and those involved in fibrotic PCO. Can I get you to explain this concept to sort of flesh this out a little bit more? Yeah. Well, as you know, Josh, um, we have uh, essentially lens epithelial cells on the front side, the back side of the front capsule, and then on the equatorial part. And there are, should be no lens epithelial cells on the posterior uh, capsule. And uh, we don't know exactly know where, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the line of the one to the other is, but there seems to be a population which is under the anterior capsule and the front part, which is really there to, uh, for nutrition of the lens during, during lifetime. Uh, and these cells, when they come into contact with a foreign body, lens, uh, IOL, intraocular lens, what will happen is that they will tend to transdifferentiate into myofibroblasts and then into fibrocytes and will lay down collagen and you'll get shrinkage, you'll get this anterior capsule pacification collagen with shrinkage. The other population which is in the, equa in the equator, we call them the equatorial cells or E-cells, they are the ones which are producing lens fibers as we live. So that means our lens grows uh, during lifetime and becomes thicker and, and bigger. Um, and when we uh, do cataract surgery afterwards, these lenses will try to um, actually uh, proliferate and produce lens fibers. And, uh, and, and they, they will then produce what we uh, call regeneratory after cataract, which typically, you know, the Elschnick pearls, for example, or the Sommerings ring, which can be in the very equatorial part of the lens. And so they produce material. So they have a different reaction and, and they, they cause different problems. In a certain way, we also need them. So, you know, but, but uh, when we talk about aftercatter, we should, I, I, I like to differentiate more the fibrotic from the regeneratory. And then you can say, well, the fibrotic is typically the anterior capsule and the regeneratory is typically the posterior capsule pacification, even though you can have mixtures. Now, I, 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 I don't want to, to pass judgment on different sorts of cells, but, um, you know, I've heard speakers say that the fibrotic anterior capsular cells uh, are of benefit to some extent after cataract surgery because uh, they, they produce the... the uh, fusing of the, the two leaves of the, the, the capsule that then acts as a, a barrier to proliferation of the equatorial cells that uh, produce the symptomatic uh, PCO and that for, for this reason, with the sorts of lenses that we're using now, uh, that it, it doesn't make sense to try to vacuum off the anterior lens capsule cells. Absolutely. So we, we actually did a trial, a randomized controlled trial, where we uh, did very uh, sort of uh, you know, um, exquisite um, capsule polishing of the anterior capsule in one eye, and the other eye we didn't do it. Um, and we actually saw that even though the capsules in, in, in the polished eyes were much clearer um, uh, after surgery, they actually had more PCO, posterior capsule pacification, and had a higher YAG rate two or three years down the line. So, so it actually turns out to be a negative thing. So we try to leave the anterior capsule in peace because we want those anterior capsule uh, lens epithelial cells to have contact and then to cause this gluing. 
So what, what, I, what I think, maybe I just show this on the table, I don't know whether it's here. What, 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 see, what the important thing we think is that you have to have the posterior capsule wrapped around the posterior edge of the IOL. And if you have a sharp optic edge, that will give you a high pressure. And that high pressure will not allow the lens epithelial cells from the equator, the equatorial, the regeneratory ones, to actually gain access to the posterior surface of the lens, of the IOL or of the capsule. So in order to have this permanent, you need some glue here to keep the anterior and posterior capsule really glued together. Because otherwise, when the lens epithelial cells regenerate in the equator and they come and they migrate towards the IOL, they will reopen the bag. And if they can reopen it here, they will have access to the, uh, to the, uh, the posterior capsule and then you will get PCO. So that's why uh, it's important to have some fibrosis. You don't want too much fibrosis because if you have a lot of fibrosis you may get decentrations, you could get tilts, you could get buttonholing of the lenses like we used to see with PMA lenses, with old silicon lenses. But that's something we see rarely with modern lenses today. But you want enough fibrosis to have a permanent seal because otherwise it will be reopened after two or three or four years or even later and then you will have ingrowth of lens epithelial cells of regeneratory, the equatorial ones behind the lens uh, IOL between the lens capsule and the IOL, and then you'll have you know classical PCO with Elschnick pearls and obviously poor vision. Now the, this this bluing barrier, this is the rationale for lenses with a with a square edge. Mm -hmm. now, how does the material of the uh, lens play play into these these two different right. cell populations? I think the you know the material has has probably an effect on, on, in two ways. Uh, one way is um, the 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 actual fibrosis, which we just spoke about, this sealing effect, this permanent glue effect will be different from lens material to lens material. So with hydrophobic lens material, for example, you have quite a bit of fibrosis and just enough to really give you a permanent seal. With more hydrophilic lenses, at least the older generation, we had the, the feeling that there was less fibrosis, which has you know some good effects, but the problem is that the seal may not be as permanent uh, as, as we would like it to be. The second thing about material is also the sharpness of the edge. Because it turns out that with hydrophilic materials, the way they're processed, the way they're made in the production, they tend not to have a sharp edge, as sharp as with the hydrophobic materials. Now this has also changed recently, because some of the manufacturers who are using hydrophilic lenses or producing hydrophilic lenses actually now make them very sharp as well. So the, uh, the group around David Spalton from London, they've actually made measurements with electronic microscopy of the lens edge, and they actually will give you a quantification of the sharpness of the edge. And it turns out that there are some hydrophilic uh, IOLs out there now that actually have a, an, an edge which is as sharp as with hydrophobic materials, whether it's uh, acrylates or, or silicon. Now, um, you know, we we can say uh, as as cataract surgeons, you know, what's what's the big deal? We get you know, it's a little cutting of the capsule. I'm going to do a yank capsulotomy. But in, in our our movement, our great hope to produce to produce this this airzots lens. PCO is uh, is a really fundamental problem. Can I can I get you to yeah. to talk about what FACO Erzatz is and yeah. what what the what the issue is? I mean FACO Erzatz, or well, we call it FACO Erzatz uh, because it's a German word, uh, but or, or you know lens refilling essentially that's what it's about. Is is I would say you know the sort of holy grail of, of anterior segment surgery. Uh, the idea of you know just making a small opening in in the capsule uh, in the anterior capsule removing the lens contents and then putting some kind of polymer 
some kind of flexible flexible material into the uh, into the lens capsule bag into, into the emptied bag and then to have an accommodating lens to have a you know sort of a, a young lens um, the problem and, and, and that has been tried since essentially the late 80s by several groups throughout the world all in animal experiments uh, and and they've if, if you go through all that and we did a review article on all these uh, you know the, um, publications and, and, and experiments they went through with monkeys and rabbits and what you see is the problem they've all run into at some point was after cataract and after cataract was the, the thing which actually stopped it working um, because they were able to, to, to do it surgically, they, they had polymers which were elastic enough, uh, but the problem was always that they, these, lens, these lenses got after, after cataract, usually after weeks, and uh, the fibrotic, which meant that the capsule was not elastic anymore, and also the regeneratory, which meant that uh, they had poor vision, and you couldn't yak these, of course, because then your polymer would just go into the vitreous, uh, in, into, into the back, back of the eye. So essentially, that if you, you really have to eradicate after cataract if you want uh, lens refilling or farquesats to work. And until now, that has not been, uh, nobody has managed to do that. I mean, there, there, were, there were some attempts of, of putting uh, very toxic substances like you know, deionized water uh, uh, or, 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 or mitomycin and others into the bag. And, and actually uh, trying to, to really uh, get these lens epithelial cells to die. But even then, there is a few that will still survive. And these few lens epithelial cells, they will regenerate very quickly. And they will give you the problems um, we, we face. And that's why Farquhar uh lens refilling has not made it, uh, uh, not, not even near to, to, to human, uh, human uh, you know, approval and, 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 and to actually use it clinically. Well, the, the, this, is, this is great stuff. Uh, it's a wonderful talk. And, and, and you know, they, they, what what I like is is that they, this this provides a, a, a new a new system for for kind of viewing what's going on in the in the capsule after cataract surgery. Thank you very very much, Oliver, for for spending the time with us today. Pleasure. Clive Picard is consultant ophthalmic surgeon in Warrington, Cheshire, United Kingdom. Oliver Findel is chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Hanusch Hospital in Vienna, Austria. Here's some additional information about the new ASCRS Media Center. Almost all of the 2012 ASCRS ASOA meeting was audio and video recorded, and there are now more than 1,300 sessions featuring almost a 1,000 speakers available online. You can view the general sessions, ASCRS paper sessions, symposia, films and posters, plus select courses and ASOA sessions on business management. It's essentially the entire meeting, anytime you want, and it's all available through the new ASCRS Media Center. If you attended the meeting, your Media Center access is free. If you're a current ASCRS or ASOA member but didn't attend, you can still see everything that you missed for the member price of $199. If you're not an ASCRS member, you can still purchase the Media Center, or better yet, join us and get the lower member price. To view the 2012 meeting through the Media Center, visit the ASCRS website at www.ascrs.org. If you're already a member, log in first 
and then click the Media Center link. If you're a guest, just click the Media Center link at the top of the page. From there, you can purchase the Chicago 2012 package, or better yet, join the ASCRS and receive the discounted member price. Ask questions of Dr. Picard, Dr. Findle, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.